This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. A limp England performance in Poland against Ukraine means their 100% record in qualifying is over. But a point is a helpful step in getting to the Euros. Is this the epitome of a lacklustre Southgate relying on a ponderous Maguire and waning Henderson playing Madison out of position, not getting the best out of Bellingham? Or do teams sometimes just not play very well and we should turn the hyperbole down a couple of notches? Elsewhere on the pitch, Scotland's 100% record continues swatting aside Cyprus. The Republic of Northern Ireland must have naught points from four games between them and Wales don't even want to play. Archie will tip up to talk about Hansi Flick sacking then there's Rubiales finally doing the right thing Anthony given a leave of absence from Manchester United Saudi Arabia not quite filling St James's Park and an update from Football Victoria Men's Metro League 8 South East all that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly Lawrence says elite lineup the Guardian Football Weekly equivalent of Sugar Babes 2001 to 2005. Mutya, Heidi and Keisha. You can choose between yourselves who you are. Barry Glendenning, welcome. Hello, I'll, I'll be Heidi Range. Okay, great. Um, Philippe O'Claire, hello. Uh, hello, Max. Um, before my time, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, before your time, right, great. Uh, Barney yeah, yeah. Ronnie, welcome. Uh, hi, Max. Hi, everyone. Uh, let's start um, with that game in Poland, then Ukraine won, England won. Barney, you were there. How was it? It was, um, okay, I wasn't actually there. Um, I just need to make that point. Ah. I should have told you before the podcast. I was meant to be there. Um, I went to the airport. Uh, my plane was cancelled. Oh. So, uh, yeah, I ended up going home from the airport. You get a free black cab if your plane's cancelled. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Were you secretly yeah, happy incredible. about that? Well, I was when I was sitting in my vast air-conditioned cab going back to my house, thinking, what should I do? I've made time. I was like a sober widow. I made time. And how did I use that time? By sitting around watching Sky Sports, drinking coffee. So anyway, you weren't there, Barney. What did you make of it? Well, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Um, teams are allowed to have bad games, and um, England have... Uh, you know, they're going to qualify. It's going to be fine. So we'll come down to fine details in Southgate's final tournament as to how he's remembered at the end. But um, there are bad games where there's something systemic involved in it and where it's kind of slightly predictable that they might have a bad game. And also uh, you get into the habit of seeing things pop up in these qualifying games that then pop up again in those really tight moments where you've got to try and win a tournament. And um, I'm, I've been massively pro Gareth. I kind of, you know, I'm big. I'm a big Gareth guy, um, partly because I think a lot of the criticism forgets how bad England were when he took over. I mean, England had gone from losing to bad teams to losing to good teams, and that's progress. Um, I think it's pretty ignorant to say they've got this wonderful, unstoppable group of players and they're being held back by the manager. It's just not true. You obviously don't watch any other leagues if you think that's the case. They lost to France, who could probably put out three teams that would give England a game. 
um, in the last World Cup. But having said that, uh, everything has a shelf life. And I do feel like Southgate has become the person he came in to stop being, if you know what I mean. He came in and wielded the axe. We got rid of a lot of the old... He got rid of Wayne Rooney very quickly. Um, but he now has his own favourites that he clings to, which all managers end up doing. And uh, there is a problem playing Harry Maguire in defence. Um, I know he had to do it this time because there are a lot of injuries. And if you put John Stones into that role instead of Maguire, a lot of the problems that were in that game might well go away if Stones was empowered to play the way he does at Man City, where he's very brave with the ball and comes forward. But... I just felt, as I wrote in my article today, that all the problems came from the incredible uh, sort of amount of space in midfield and defence because Maguire plays so deep. It's the reason he doesn't play for Man United either. Um, it's a very, very cautious way of playing football. He sits back in this pocket because he's always the slowest man on any football pitch and it sets the temper for the whole team. Maguire had the ball seven times in the first 90 minutes as England's deepest player. And you're asking your team to kind of start from a standing start to find some kind of ignition. And that's not how modern football is played. And I just don't, I think Southgate's time as a tactical coach, if there was one, may have sort of passed. And he needs to do something new. I think he's good at doing new. He likes young players. He's always had a slightly reckless side. And I'd just like to see him saying, all right, sod this. We can sort of see how this is going to go in Germany if we put out a team like this. Why don't I try something new now? There's nothing to be lost in, in trying something slightly different in some of those positions that just don't work. And you can't pick Jordan Henderson anymore. Yeah, he's he's slightly reckless in a Theresa May Fields of Wheat way, isn't he, <laughs> Karen Southgate? Um, yes, lots of questions about that. Does Barney think, John says, does Barney think Hendo is the right player to build England's midfield around Aussie B? Please ask Barney if he's now reverted to the Barney of old. His two articles this week, Reem Maguire and Henderson, seem to indicate that the edge and crankiness are back. I'm, I'll go to I'll go to you, Philippe, on, on Jordan Henderson. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I'm sure you have many thoughts. Uh but like footballing wise, you know, is his time up? Is that, you know, is that over? Because he's not in a league that's competitive, right? He's got lots of good players and lots of not good players. Well, you could even argue that even when he was still at Liverpool, where his um, actually starting position, uh, starting place in the team was actually in danger. Uh, you could argue that, um, you know, there too, maybe he wasn't quite the player he had been. Um, it's It's baffling. Um, I think that there is an element of um, when when Barney talks about recklessness, given what has been said about Jordan Henderson, given what has um, happened to his career over the past year or so, I think there was something reckless for Southgate to, um, in a way, support him so publicly. And, and, and the choice doesn't make sense, to be honest. It's not as if England were lacking options in that particular role. But can I actually, on, on that, can I come back just to something that um, Barney was saying about Harry Maguire? Because uh, one of the reasons why Maguire, Maguire's selection was justified is because of the injury or the inavailability of John Stones. Um, have you noticed that there's a guy called Fikayo Tomori, <laughs> who was back in the squad, was, uh, I think, elected best defender in Serie A in 2022, He's a certain starter for for Milan, not exactly a, a Mickey Mouse team, and who can't get a look-in. And similarly, Ben White doesn't get a look-in. There are things which are a little bit strange, which are happening to Guy Southgate. And as if he was 
congealing, a bit like um, a bechamel. So you're 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 expecting a little bit of zing and tang and salsa verde, <laughs> and what you get is a bechamel, which yes. is a bit lumpy, yeah. <laughs> and it's getting lumpier and lumpier because the ingredients are have been staying on the cooker for a bit too long. It's not good. And Henderson, I don't understand. It's as well, if you talk about Harry Maguire standing three yards deeper than anybody else, Jordan Henderson is the master of the lateral pass. He's the master of the two touches when I get the ball. Then I see a partner doing a run in midfield with a tight angle. I ignore him and instead pass the ball behind me. And the only forward passes he was playing on that occasion, as he does most of the time, are those very, very safe passes to the winger or the player who is on the wing, be it Walker or Bukayo Saka, um, and, but doing it in such a way that the winger has no choice but to get back inside or actually pass the ball backwards again. And, and this is, I mean, safe is not a bad player, but as you said, I mean, he's now working in a, well, yeah, working <laughs> in, in a league that is still quite not the best of, of leagues, we shall say so. As to the man, you will notice that I didn't say a word about him because I think, can I just quote a certain Barley Roney who described him as a starting midfielder currently operating as a deep cover liberal morality agent in a developing league. And I think that says it all, Max. It's beautiful, isn't it? Finally, Barney wrote something good, Barry, didn't he? It's so hard to carry him all this time. Yeah, about time. (laughs) <laughs> it's monkeys and typewriters, isn't it? <laughs> um, Barry, your thoughts? I'd add, I'd add Lewis Donk to the list of uh, centre-backs yes. who could have been given a game ahead of Maguire. And I think in the build-up to the game, was the the arguments were like the likes of him and Tamori aren't experienced enough. But how are they supposed to become experienced if they don't get any game time? And surely a game against Ukraine that it doesn't really matter what the result is, is just the time to give them that experience, you know, when uh, the likes of John Stones is injured. I just wanted to add on Tamori. Um, uh, the reason, I mean, the, the the official line on that, I mean, the, no, it's not official, the, the sort of back channel line on that that I've been told is that um, while he's a good defender, um, what he doesn't have is the same physical presence and Southgate wants to have someone in his back line who's good at winning headers that's why he picks Maguire who does win a lot of headers and is very good in a very static duel the word is that they don't think Tamori is physically he's not a big guy um he's he's a he's a sort of quick decent on the on the, with the ball uh, that kind of covering defender and they want a balance that's the reason officially and with Ben White he left the squad that's the thing. I mean, I think this relates to Sterling being dropped as well. I think there's a little bit of I've been manager for six years, and along the way, there are players who piss you off, basically. And I think that's what's happening with some of those selections. I, I'm sort of sympathetic in a way. If somebody leaves, you, you pick them and they end up leaving because they've an argument with one of your coaches, are you supposed to then pick them again? I don't know. I mean, there isn't an element there of that, um, which I, I kind of, but though, that's apparently the official explanation for those absences. Um, the thought of only picking someone who's bigger than Harry Maguire really limits it to what Jaws from James Bond. No, no, Harry Maguire is 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 that solid guy who wins headers. True. And if you pick Tamori instead of him, you miss the physical presence. That would be what Gareth would say to you when you say, why aren't you picking Tamori instead? 
Barry, I heard someone saying, oh, James Madison has failed his England audition. Uh, this is this is the sort of bit that I find quite frustrating. Is, you, know, you play 60 minutes, you might not have a great game. You're slightly out of position. Is it unlucky for Southgate that the three guys who started the season so well, Rice, Bellingham and Madison, didn't really show up in this game? Or is that his fault? I would have a certain amount of sympathy for Madison in so far as he's playing out of position. But I, I think it's a problem Southgate brought on himself by... A, including Henderson in the squad, which gave him problems, off-field issues to deal with that he could have done without, and then picking him for the starting lineup, which gave him on-field issues he could have done without, because Madison, or maybe James Ward-Prowse, if, who's had a great start to the season as well, could have been in that position, stick Rashford out wide, and then who's to say it won't? have a totally different outcome. I think it's ridiculous to suggest Madison has failed his England audition and he said himself in the build-up, you know, he doesn't consider himself an automatic inclusion in the squad or doesn't think he's cemented, which is quite obvious because I think this is only his fourth appearance for England. It would be absolutely baffling if, if Henderson is still in the next England squad. And I, I don't want to do him down. He he has been a good servant for England. and But... <sighs> You know, he is playing in this really sub-standard league. And Southgate has said, you know, he's reluctant to pick championship players. But the Saudi Pro League is several levels below the championship. You don't imagine Southgate would pick a midfield of Rice, Bellingham and Madison, Philippe. But could he? Is that too gung-ho in those games against... Because Madison drops deep and is really good on the ball, Bellingham is obviously really box-to-box can be, as Rice can be. No, I don't think that would be too gung-ho. Uh, if you think about gung-ho managers, uh, think of Didier Deschamps, who is well-known for his risk-taking. <laughs> uh, that doesn't prevent him from having Antoine Griezmann playing as a third midfielder. So what's the problem? I, I, I genuinely don't understand, especially when you've got I mean, when you've got Bellingham and Rice, you've got actually, you know, I was going to say four or six players in two in many ways. They're, they're so polyvalent and both of them are extremely intelligent in the pos- positioning. Um, one of them is more, um, I mean, they're also extremely good at inter- intercepting. They're good at reading uh, the trajectories of the ball, at reading the opponent's game. No, I, I, I really cannot see why. I, I don't understand. This is, this is where I, I, I fail because this is an obvious solution in a way for the lack of creativity that everybody's bemoaning in that England team and why shouldn't Rice and Bellingham be enough to provide the security and safety you need in front of a back four I I don't quite understand yes absolutely Madison can try that but he's not the only one there would actually be quite a few players uh, who would be able to... I mean, Phil Foden has been deployed in that kind of role by, by Pep Guardiola at Manchester City, for example. And I, I didn't see Henderson particularly providing a defensive structure in that game. I thought there were two interesting moments. Uh, one was Declan Rice with his hand over his mouth in case the FBI were watching, um, berating Jordan Henderson for some poor defensive positioning or not standing in the right place. And the other was Jude Bellingham um, yelling back at his defence, telling them to push up behind him. Now, these are two young players who have have been through some really modern coaching systems and who play for very good teams, who understand how modern football is supposed to feel. Looking around the, at their teammates and saying, well, hang on, this, isn't, this structure isn't working, this isn't good. And if they feel like that 
um, possibly there's there's a message in there. Um, I, I, I was wondering if we're going to say that Jude Bellingham has failed his England audition in the same <laughs> way that James Madison has. I mean, maybe he's just not good enough. I mean, there is an there is an arrogance in taking a player who started that well for Real Madrid and find their Real Madrid and maybe England aren't Real Madrid, although maybe England should see themselves as Real Madrid when they're playing these qualifiers and playing him in a difficult position that isn't one he's been doing this season. I mean, sure, he's good enough to make that work, but... Why, why not go easy on yourself? Why not just play that person who's one of the best players in the world, who's flying as a central withdrawn attacker in that role and see what happens? What have you got to lose? I mean, Southgate, in many ways, I really feel he should have gone uh, after maybe one of the last two tournaments because all we're doing now is divvying up the kind of entrails of his era. I feel like all the best stuff has happened. People have a position on him. If he now wins the Euros, he will be roundly slaughtered for not winning all the previous competitions. He's finally got one right. <laughs> he's finally listened to us. And if he doesn't, it will be he's wasted. But people seem to think this is the greatest international team ever devised because they should have won three tournaments in a row, which I mean, did Spain do that. Maybe they did, but... England are not not Spain. You know there is no Xavi. Um, they've done pretty well. But I feel he's got nothing to gain now. He may as well at least try to do something different. Um, uh, but he's not doing that. Yeah. Now he's become um, congealed bechamel entrails. It's sort of less it's letter, less appetising than he was. You know, in the exciting years. But I think he's, he has probably earned the right. You know, to do this tournament in. Whichever way he wants, but, but why does he want to do that? What's the joy? What's what are we what are we discovering? Well, I agree. Here? I, We're discovering Jordan Henderson is an I'm okay midfielder who, when England didn't really have any midfielders, yeah. was a good person to have in there, and was part of the problem in you know in 2018. He was really isolated against Croatia in the World Cup semi final. Luka Modric swerving past him in extra time, and we sent on Eric Dyer to try and plug the holes. And you kind of felt, well, okay, this is where England can develop. But here we are, he's playing in a third-rate league and we're still picking him as a first-choice starting midfielder. What's the point? What are we learning here? What, what's, is Gareth Southgate enjoying this? Because probably the, the problem is that England went too close. And if you go too close and you think that there was an element of bad luck or that there was an element which was without your, your control, which determined the fate of the game, and you think, well, actually, I was doing the, making the right choices. All that happened, that there's a little grain of sand, a butterfly flew off a flower and and these are the consequences and and in each major tournament you could argue for that you could also argue that the reasons for the ultimate failure were much deeper than that but you could see if you are in charge of it thinking well i was right we were that close and the reason we didn't quite go over the line had nothing to do with my choices it had to do with bad luck. It had to do with the referee's decision. It had to do with a player scoring a worldie. Blah, 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 blah. And then you carry on. And then, yes, you get your feet get sucked in the bechamel. And then you can't move anymore. <laughs> I, I, look, I'm with you, Barney. I've been a sort of Southgate apologist forever. And it is one game. So maybe I'm being, you know, I'm turning into the everyone's auditions over. But I, I agree with, you know, the stiltedness of it and that the nervousness that he will carry on with that. I think his, as Wilson would tell you, like his understanding is you win tournaments by being really tight and winning a header from a set piece scored by a really large man. And, uh, you know, we should mention Harry Kane's pass was great. The only sort of great bit from England and great for Carl Walker to score his first goal from England in 77 games. And look, Ukraine are, I think a lot of people thought, Philippe, that Ukraine would just roll over and they didn't. And they're still in this because Italy drew with North Macedonia. 
Yeah. The atmosphere was amazing. Yeah. And and it's you know, it is significant that every time Ukraine play England, we talk about what's happening in Ukraine. And so if they did qualify, it would be very significant for that country. Yeah, and if you look at as well the, um, that you would normally think that the chief uh, rival for, for the second spot uh, would be Italy, and they will have the advantage of uh, welcoming Italy on the 20th of November. And you saw the atmosphere was absolutely, I mean, extraordinary. And I was going to say I was jealous of you, Barney, but no, because you weren't there in the end. To be to witness that, and and you think yes, pretty much like when you look at um, North Macedonia and Malta, they're not going to drop points there. You don't think so? So they have, they have a genuinely good chance. And and by the way, how good was Alexander Zinchenko in that position as a midfielder? And you're thinking, well, if only we had Zinchenko in England, <laughs> who played with that kind of freedom, that kind of imagination as well, uh, in that role. But um, we did not. All right, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two we'll begin with Scotland's win in Cyprus. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Brendan says, can you come to Perth, Australia on your next world tour? You won't have uh, to fly as far. Barry will get the support of the expat Irish population. He'll sell out due to the large expat population. And Philippe will get to experience the wine and music scene. Um, listen, it is, it's on the list of things we want to do, as is the States. But we are, uh, we're sticking to the UK and Ireland this time. November the 13th, London, Ellis James, Troy Townsend. Philippe, you're coming. Uh, and uh, me and Barry, of course. Uh, still tickets for that one. Bristol sold out. Mark Langdon, Jordan Jarrett, Brian, Manchester. Uh, still a few tickets left. John Bruin and Nader Manuha. The 21st in Dublin, there are still a few tickets, but 20th is sold out. Me, Baz, Lars and Wilson. And the Brighton show uh, is very close to selling out. It's live streamed around the world. So wherever you are, you can watch that. Me, Barry, Nikki, and Johnny. Barney, you were invited, but you're in India at the Cricket World Cup. So it's it's not a slide. Yes, I noticed that you carefully you carefully <laughs> studied the dates of when I would be out of the country and issued an invite for them only. I'll be in the, yeah, I'll be in the country soon to be known as Bharat. Have you noticed that India India's changing See, its name? Maybe your flight will be cancelled and you will suddenly become available. <laughs> It was a terrible thing. I felt so useless and I felt like, well, I felt finally uh, like a fraud, like a genuine fraud. Um, it's finally been confirmed. Um, but there you go. Do, do you know if England, if India changes its name to, to Bharat, which is being right. mooted, the Narendra Modi apparently wants to do this. There has been a suggestion that Pakistan might then change its name to the vacant India. Oh, really? Is this sort of like a number plate? You can get it. You can sort of take it off someone else. <laughs> Must be expensive. Well, India must be expensive to, to get. Peninsula, it's like big historical reasons why that's totally illegitimate, and I can understand why. But it's totally mind blowing. It's like England becoming Wales if Wales becomes Cymru, or the other way around, actually, because Wales didn't really oppress oppress England, I guess, in any way. Yeah, it's it's a, an odd. It one. is interesting, um, and 
probably not going to be discussed on the live tour, but come anyway, <laughs> theguardian.com slash fwtour23. Cyprus nil, Scotland three. So five wins from five for one of the home nations. Uh, very simple, Barry, wasn't it? These sort of games you... To be honest, you look at any Scotland fixture and think, <laughs> oh, they might not. But right now, they just do. Uh, they've won 11 qualifiers in a row now, five out of five in this group. I think most people expected them to beat Cyprus, who were bottom without a point. But I think it was just the ruthless efficiency with which they dispatched them that was very untypically Scottish. You know, Scotland teams of yore would be expected to make very hard work of this game probably win it but you know leave it late or but i think the the game was over in in 30 minutes job done didn't need to try a leg in the second half because cyprus offered very little and they're just happy to conserve energy and i'm looking at the scotland team and i'm thinking mm, why can't ireland be like this but then they're, they're just much better quality players <laughs> than ireland and they, you know, Kieran Tierney, Billy Gilmore, Scott McTominay, Andy Robertson, John McGinn, Shea Adams, they're all good players. They're not world beaters, but they're very good players. And uh, and a step above most, or if not all, of what Ireland has to offer. But, um, you know, they are going to qualify uh, and qualify with absolute ease. And they've, Steve Clark's doing a terrific job there. And, uh, yeah, good luck to them. I mean, I, they're playing this friendly against England is it tomorrow night. People are saying, oh, it won't be a friendly. I think it will. <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> yes. I don't think either team will be that fussed about what how it plays out. But the, the crowd will enjoy it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the main takeout from this game is the, the, the ease with which they won and the how quickly they put the game to bed and, and didn't give themselves any problems whatsoever. Scott McTominay is, I think, the leading scorer in, the, is, in yes. qualifiers. Uh, and, and five, it, six in five. Yeah, and uh, his goal was pretty straightforward, but he was in the right place. And then he was a, you know, played a key role in scoring that third goal. McGinn, uh, who scored it, Che Adams did well as well. And it's interesting with Scott McTominay, Philippe. He's not really... He's played seven minutes for Manchester United. And he sort of feels, in a Manchester United sense, the next in line to be the the next meme after Phil Jones and Harry Maguire. Like he's sort of in a, in a, you know, there is that figure of fun element to McFred and people going, oh God, McFred, we can't stand. Admittedly, he's only half of McFred, but like, how good is he? Like if he's scoring all these go- goals in, in these games, should he have moved? Like should Eric Ten Hag take a look at him? Because Man United's midfield isn't working. The weird thing is that he's used in a very different way with Scotland as he has been when he has been by Manchester United. You know, um, my first memory of Scott McTominay when he broke in the team was Jose Mourinho lavishing praise on him because he'd played um, a sideways pass or something like that, which was the right pass. It was very much considered to be the uh, the enforcer, the no-frills defensive midfielder, uh, with quite um, quite a good knowledge of the dark arts as well, which he does have. No, what nobody knew was that he was also this uh, all-singing, all-dancing answer to Jude Bellingham uh, for Scotland, where he plays in a more advanced position, where he, he does his runs and so forth, and um, and takes advantage of it. So uh, it, it's it's a it's a weird one because you would expect that he would be at least given a, a look in, uh, but clearly Ten Hag doesn't rate him very highly. Uh, so maybe yes, he should have gone. Maybe yeah. yes, he should have gone. 
Am I wrong in thinking that John McGinn is one of Europe's best players since the beginning of the season, both for club and country? Or am I being just a little bit overenthusiastic for, for, for Scotland when I say that? Because I see him play and I'm thinking, my goodness, who is this player? What a talent. Skillful, fast, intelligent, capable of scoring absolutely, I mean, goals from another planet as well. Um, an absolute nightmare for any fullback. I mean, what's happened to him? Has he always been like this, John McGinn? He is a really good player. He's playing a different, slightly different role for Villa, I think, this season. And he's playing slightly wider. Um, Emery has some interesting uh, tactical plans. And when that works, I think he's played really well. On McTominay, I think he, like Fred, Fred is not a defensive midfielder in that way. They're both victims of the kind of meat grinder of Manchester United, where you can just you just throw a career into it and it emerges on the other end as kind of minced, um, uh, very fatty beef that nobody wants. I mean, you, you can throw anything into that thing and bad stuff is coming out. I, I think he should have, clearly should have either had a chance as, I guess, under the new notation, yeah, number eight. Um, instead, he's been played as an old style number four or a modern day number six. I think we say number six now. Um, and that's just not really his role. He grew, he came through the ranks as a attacking midfielder or striker, grew massively um, towards the end of his teenage years. And they somebody saw a big guy. And so he got shoved into that role. And obviously, you're going to play there. He wants to play for Man United. But it's a really, really difficult position that we sometimes um, underestimate the complexity. And to play that role against the best teams in Europe is very, very difficult. It's particularly in a confused environment with managers coming and going. And I think both him and Fred got slightly ruined by Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and the refusal by a proper player to play there. Um, and yeah, the Man United meat grinder um, has, has done for someone else. He really should go to another Premier League team where he can play in that role and find out how good he is. Uh, you and Murray joined us uh, from the Jazz Bar on Wednesday uh, after the England-Scotland game um, and after Spain and Norway both play. So we'll have a better idea of that group. Uh, Spain beat Georgia 7-1. Um, I don't want to throw... Paul Watson under the bus. I think he said it could be a tricky game for Spain. It wasn't. Um, uh, Lamine Yamal made his debut at 16 years old and scored. The youngest ever Spain goal scorer. And even more surprising is Alvaro Morata scored a hat-trick. Uh, it's very odd to see him not looking mournful. Yamal, surprising thing about him is he actually looks 16. Yeah. Often you get these kids coming through who, you know, massively bearded <laughs> kind of warriors. But he looks like a 16-year-old. He failed he his also, audition. He also missed he? a sitter, which I think we should dwell on more and and become incredibly angry about and replay. To be honest, why, why, why play a 16-year-old? I don't, I don't really get it. Um, I'm sure he'd be a really good footballer, but I, I don't really buy it. Well, I've got a 16-year-old son. 16-year-olds don't know what's going on in the world. I wouldn't expose, you know, I don't even like them being on social media, to be honest. I don't understand why children are playing at that level of football. I don't think, that's just my opinion. I'm probably wrong. It's a short career, go and do it. But Yeah, I mean, there's like that that, that boy Pelé. I mean, why they sent him to the 1958 World Cup? I never Well, Pelé was true. 17 and <laughs> Pelé found the whole experience very traumatic. Um, it was really a really strange, difficult experience for him. And we did a lot of things in 1958 to teenagers that I don't think we'd do now. I mean, um, it's probably not something worth going. I don't think that should be a model. Who knew Philippe would be the one saying, ah, you know, poverty, I grew up, you know, the 70s were great. Let's go back to those years. It's been de 
deep cover all this time, Philippe, with your modern <laughs> ideas. The truth uh, yes. is out. Yes, of course. Yeah, get uh, them working at 12, for goodness sake. We have to mention the fact, because I think it is a world first, that we had Emmerich Laporte and Robin Lenormand starting in central defence for Spain. Two players born and raised in France with the most French-sounding family names that you could possibly imagine playing in central defence for Spain. That's magnificent. I, I, sorry, I just want to say people won't agree with me about that and because there's a kind of cult of youth and because he looks like a really nice kid and it's a happy picture. But I, I football, how do we feel about our young men in football? Are they being well handled? Are we happy with it? Is it all happy stories about how young men are treated in football? You can't, on the one hand, say that this is a violent, brutal industry that doesn't raise its men properly. And on the other hand, say, hey, 16-year-old, let's put loads of focus on him. I, I don't know. Not for me. Not in any sport, really. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have kids that young. Barry, the Republic lost to France and then lost at home to the Netherlands. No big surprise, I guess. Alan says, uh, Barry, Ireland players are a good bunch, very willing, but ultimately lack quality and will always struggle at the top of the game. I describe them as a team full of Kevin Kilbans. Would that be an insult to Kevin Kilban or the Ireland squad? Or is it fair? Uh, I think it's a bit harsh on Kevin, uh, although I did notice he had a column, I think it was in the Irish Times yesterday, saying that, you know, the Netherlands are nothing to be afraid of and that uh, our central defenders will be well able to deal with, without Veghorst and going, yeah, thanks, Kevin, he's going to score the winner now, and he duly did. Um, yeah, the, the game in Paris against France, uh, France won 2-0, could have won by a lot more and Ireland I think had one chance during the game no one expected us to win that which made the Netherlands game at home must win we lost we played quite well we showed willing weren't no anywhere near good enough uh, and have now lost four out of five in the group can't qualify automatically I think I think mathematically we can but it's not going to happen um, and what disappointed me from this game was just that the Netherlands weren't particularly good. Um, they've been up and down in this group and they, were, they weren't great last night. Ireland took the lead. And then if just a couple of defensive errors, you know, runs not being tracked, uh, Shane Duffy playing people off onside. Uh, and the Netherlands eventually took the points. They have much better players than we do. So do France. And... There is talk now in Ireland that this could be the end of the line for Stephen Kenny because he's been in charge for three years and apart from blooding a lot of new young players, he hasn't really done anything. We we haven't beaten a decent team in that during his reign. I think we've lost 21 competitive games in the three years he's been in charge. And if he does go... I'm not sure how the FAI are fixed financially. I suspect they're potless. Who can they bring in that would be better? But uh, Stephen Kenny just seems to be constantly saying, look, we learn from this and, and be better in the next game. But we, we don't seem to be learning much on his watch. And I, I, he's getting a lot of slack because he's a homegrown manager who cut his teeth in the League of Ireland. And... He's getting, I think, slack that wouldn't be afforded to other managers, but I think people are running out of patience. But the fact remains, you know, we're playing France and the Netherlands, whose players are all elite playing in the Champions League. Most of our team 
are in the championship. We've a few Premier League players. We've a few outside the championship you know, in League One. We've James McLean is now playing for Wrexham in League Two. So I don't think we were ever going to get out of this group. Uh, Richard says, please don't mention the Northern Ireland game other than to commend the 150 fans who went to a city that is as far east as Kabul or Islamabad just to watch that, uh, referring to the 1-0 defeat in Kazakhstan. Uh, That followed uh, a 4-2 defeat uh, in Slovenia. Uh, They're having a very sad time uh, in their group. Uh, They are uh, just three points ahead of San Marino, played 6-1-1 against San Marino. Um, uh, they were, they've were they had a lot of injuries, uh, which is perhaps a mitigating circumstance. But uh, yes, they are not going to trouble the Euros this time. Wales uh, drew 0-0 with South Korea. They play Latvia tonight. Again, they absolutely have to win if they're to uh, stay in with an outside shot of qualification. I think before and after the game, Robert Page said, look, he didn't want to play the game South against South Korea. Finally, an international manager saying how we all feel about the international break. Well, it's slightly different if they are the games you are involved in. Uh, but anyway, we'll uh, we'll get a note from Ellis James, or we'll try to. I think Ellis has gone to Latvia. Has he? All right. I'll message him and see if he'll do us a little voice note from there uh, for Wednesday's pod. I suspect he might be drunk. <laughs> Oh, we'll take it. Uh, all right, that'll do for part two. Uh, Archie Mintat will join us in just a sec uh, to talk about Hansi Flick getting fired. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Robin Cowan uh, of the pod says, in the Guardian book, uh, Philippe says he hates hotel breakfast. What traumatic event from his past has led to this shocking revelation, Philippe? Um, It's uh, having to spend far too much time in uh, those chain hotels, which is the only one that my TV station would book me in, and having the experience of the um, Novotel or Britannia Hotel buffet. And one particularly bad memory of it uh, is every time I, I try it, every time thinking it can't be as bad as last time, the scrambled eggs. The the scrambled ho- hotel oh, yeah. hotel scrambled eggs. Um, I don't know. There is something almost morbid about them. <laughs> um, it's uh, but but I kept going back to the buffet, feeling hungry and thinking, okay, I'm going to try it. I'm trying a mouthful. I know it's horrible. Then you've got the um, how how do you call them? Oh yes, those potato cakes dripping with oil. Uh, the bacon mm. hash brown. The hash oh, browns. Yeah. yeah, the 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 bacon which has exuded. Um, uh, sulfites and very strange things during cooking, and that has congealed because it's not quite hot enough. And you can, oh, the uh, the mushrooms which have been steamed and not and not pan fried. Yeah. Um, the tomatoes straight from the can. <laughs> the uh, sausages which mm. might contain sometimes pork or beef yeah. or lamb or whatever, probably um, wood dust, horse. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a relief actually, perhaps, and the the, the tepid coffee, and that that so that has actually uh, yeah cured me from br- um, hotel breakfasts. Uh, sometimes the bacon is all stuck together. They've actually recreated the pig, haven't they? That's that was a sad one. We try and get one rasher, and you get sixty eight, and there's no, there's nothing you can do. And then it, it jumps up and starts running around the dining room. It's really. This great flapping bacon. You know, you know, there's a continental option available. You could just have fruit, bread, cheese, you know, jam, marmalade. The fruit salad is usually uh, seedless white grapes with 
not very nice apple which have been staying marinating in their own juices and a bit of sugar for for 24 hours so i won't touch that either it's the it's the weird juice around it that really oh, disgusting. oh yeah yeah yuck, yuck. <laughs> Um, that is the voice of Archie Rintat, who joins us now. All, all uh, contributors to this pod are in the bookguardianbookshop.com slash football. Uh, if you want gold, like how Philippe feels about scrambled eggs. Um, Archie joins us because Germany have sacked their, Germany have sacked their manager. How are you, Archie? Uh, I'm all right, Max. I'm all right. How are you doing? Um, so Hansi Flick is the first German manager to be sacked. Does it mean they're all still there? Was my first thought. They're all just there next to each other. Kind of, it's like, it, you're making me think of like the house of many faces, isn't it? In Game of Thrones, <laughs> of just them all on the wall there, looking back yeah. down at you. Uh, yeah, so to get to the point, performances have been terrible uh, and results have been even worse since the World Cup. Uh, one win against Peru and to be sacked when you have no competitive games is some achievement. And it tells you something about the complete <laughs> breakdown, which had already been in the process of happening between, I'd say, the fans, German people, and the, the national team. There is zero connection with them there. Even when they were trying to build up play against Japan, there were whistles in Wolfsburg on Saturday night. That tells you the nadir that they'd reached. But what I think really did for Hansi Flick as well was the release of the Amazon All or Nothing Germany World Cup documentary. Ooh, that did that not good? help his cause. Ha- have, have you had a little watch, Max? I've, I've not, no. I'm, I'm full up of those, but, you know, tell me if it's worth it. I, th- I think it is, uh, if not mainly for cutting to a scene just before their opener against Japan, when Hansi Flick stands up in front of the team and says, the team psychologist has has prepared something that I think we should all watch and that I think, you know, is something that we should really take on board. And up pops this thing of saying, our great flight. And then the immortal words, let's learn from the geese. I think that Alex Ferguson talked about learning from geese before. The difference is, if you're winning games and you've built up a lot of credit, I think you can talk about geese. If you're not, then I think it's a difficult if it's it's a difficult sell to a bunch of young men who are already kind of like giving you vibes. We're not we're not terribly sure of the whole direction you're going in anyway. Uh, as much as we respect you because you won a Champions League with Bayern, let's learn from the geese. Mm. Do you think he sat there in the? Uh, do you think he sat? You know, him and his assistant were like, "It's not going well." <laughs> you know, do we bring out the geese? It's the last roll of the dice. I can... Bring out the geese. What it is about the geese is that they fl- they 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 move around in a in a very uh, sudden, sharp movement into enemy territory in their V-shaped formation, like a kind of, um, you know, sudden uh, column of, like a column, maybe yeah. a column of armoured vehicles or tanks, you know, blasting through the centre of something. That's how, how the geese... So the full quote, the full quote, let's learn from the geese and head out for our great flight. So, you know, there's a few more things. You see these geese uh, kind of yeah. flapping away. And then Hansi Flick stands up at the end of it and goes, grey geese. Grey geese have nothing to do with us, basically. And you're like, how can you start your speech straight after that by basically imitating, like, Michael Scott uh, from, or David Brent from The Office? Like, he just seems to have no real self-awareness. And actually, I think his complete lack of self-reflection, uh, particularly in the media, it, 
Germans are obsessed with authenticity. And I think the biggest problem for any German coach right now is Jurgen Klopp. Because he is Mr. Authentic in Germany. To the point that you see him on every single advert break. To, I like Jurgen Klopp, but I find him annoying now because of the amount of time he's trying to sell me stuff. Drink this beer. What's he What's he advertising? Drink this it, beer. Oh yeah, what, what? Uh, buy this insurance. Uh, buy this car. Like, Jurgen, please leave me alone. Like, it's, <laughs> it's annoying. But the truth is, is that he's seen as the everyman. And they tried to present Hansi Flick as the everyman. Like, his book was released before the World Cup, and it was like, well, yeah, I, I think we can see the PR push which is going here. And, like, whilst he, he is definitely... Look, like, like all of these top coaches, they have an incredible amount of tactical acumen in that. But I think his reading of the situation and what was required was well off. How good should Germany be, like, with their squad? Should they be challenging? Should they be sort of, you know, quarterfinal and out? What do you reckon? There's, there's been a drop-off of the, the world-class players. Of, of like, you know, legends of the game. Bastian Schweinsteiger, Philipp Lahm. I'd include Meza Ozil in that category as well for the moments of magic that he could produce for, for the national team. Thomas Muller at, at his peak as well. Everything gelled, let, let alone a, a fully fit Manuel Neuer as well. Albeit that's not, that's not so much the problem. Even those centre-backs that they had of, of Hummels and Boateng, like defensively, Germany are wobbly. But that said, you look at the amount of players here who all play Champions League football, there has to be more. But I think they've completely lost sight of what it means to to mould a team together and not just try and copy in a haphazard way what Bayern Munich are doing. They have the quality. They don't have a they don't have a, a wealth of strikers, for sure. There's some positions where they're weak. But People need to put their things aside. Joshua Kimmich needs to accept if the team needs you to play right back, go play right back, for example. Um, uh, who's who's going to get the job? The names. The top wish would be Jurgen Klopp, I think, undoubtedly. W- will that happen? Probably not. But the fact that Germany are hosting the Euros next summer is a huge pull. Julian Nagelsmann has been touted. However, let's not forget... The DFB, the German FA, got Hansi Flick from Bayern. And I don't think Bayern were too happy about that because they then had to go and get Julian Nagelsmann for a lot of money. Uh, and if the DFB want Julian Nagelsmann now, they'll have to pay at least 10 million, I think it is, from the rest of his contract. So his name's been touted as well. For now, on the bench against France, it will be Sandro Wagner, who you might remember played up front for Bayern and actually loudly quit the national team five years ago, uh, saying that he didn't think his critical way of thinking was was required. Uh, Hannes Wolf, who I mentioned there, and Rudy Furler as well, who is the sport director uh, right now and also not doing a great job. Archie, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Cheers. Archie been sat there out in Cologne. Um, elsewhere, uh, Group J, Luxembourg won their third game in a row. Uh, with their 3-1 victory over Iceland. Uh, they've also beaten Bosnia uh, and uh, drawn in Slovakia. Their highest points total since 1996. And we're still only halfway through qualifying. Um, did you want to talk about them, Philippe? The Luxembourgish? They have, first of all, it's front page news and has been uh, for the last couple of days uh, what is happening to the national football team, which doesn't happen very often in the Grand Duchy. Um, and... Um, the other thing is that they stand a real chance because um, they have games at home against their two competitors, rivals, 
for the second qualifying spot. Uh, Slovakia uh, and Bosnia, they already beat, uh, they know this, they drew with Slovakia in Slovakia. And so they they will be at home and they could very well qualify for their first ever major tournament. Magnificent. I, I went through their team. I was trying to find, I, I, I assumed it must be all plastic Luxembourgeoises. Um and there, there is a, there's a Serb and there's a Belgian, there's a Frenchman, but basically they're all from Luxembourg. Um, what's happened? How is Because I just think of them losing 9-0 and Luther Blissett scores a hat-trick. That's my analysis. They've always had um, um, kind of miraculous results, um, such as that, uh, there was a, a famous draw against France in 2017. Uh, I mean, there, there have been good results. And to be honest, if you look at Luxembourg, it's not as if you're looking at some Ruritanian principality with... Uh, you know, peopled by Grand Dukes and Shepherdesses. Uh, it's actually a, a real country. And it's actually uh, also a kind of a, a magnet for all sorts of various communities from the surrounding countries, which is why when you look at the, it's true whether the, the setup of the Luxembourg team, they are Portuguese, Italian, Flemish, whatever. No, they're all Luxembourgian. They've never been as bad as San Marino and Gibraltar. And I think we're perhaps a bit lazy when we say, you know, they belong to that kind, that kind of group. They've always had decent results from time to time. But this is the first time that they've had, I think, three uh, wins on the trot in official competition and a genuine chance of qualifying for the Euros. Question from fear of the penalty kick. It's surely time to make amends for your shameful lack of coverage of the Liechtenstein national team by devoting an entire segment uh, to this um, emoji that uh, hasn't been translated but banger of a volley by Sandro Wolfinger their first goal in qualifying it was absolutely this volley was extreme I don't think he didn't quite celebrate enough if you ask me like his teammates were all like looked shocked as in they've obviously never seen any one of their teammates ever score a goal but he was pretty cool about it so uh, well done to him Uh, Neymar has broken Pele's goal record of 77 uh, for Brazil Uh, all-time highest scoring uh, men's Brazilian footballer uh, he now has 79 in 125 appearances. Barney, are we, are we, you know, does that mean he's better than Pele? Uh, yes, yes. The, the numbers are clear. Yes. No, I Good. mean, I, you know, obviously not. Um, but I think Neymar gets, as a footballer, gets a slightly hard deal. I mean, his career choice is not very good, but he is a brilliant footballer and he's relentlessly productive. Um watch him in the flesh and it's kind of breathtaking he it's such a wasted talent in some ways in that you just feel he could have been such an uplifting figure he could have done so much more he's wasted his time um rolling around um i mean I, tim vickery is interesting on him he says the reason he looks at the referee falls over so much as growing up in futsal where this happens a lot the referee's constantly in their fouls really carefully policed and you develop this habit of constantly falling over referee there's a free kick every 30 seconds. But I mean, that was some time ago, Neymar. <laughs> but I see him as a real, I mean, I love Brazilian football and I see him as a bit of a sort of tragic waste, but his career has still been extraordinary. Um, he is, him along with Messi, uh, I'd say he's footballer of the last 30, 40 years. You look at and think can can do anything, literally anything at all. Um, but uh, he's, a, he's a troubling figure. Football got hold of him. The modern world's got hold of him. And some pretty sort of depressing things have happened to him. Um, while we're on Brazil, 
Um, Manchester United winger Anthony's agreed to delay his return to the club to address allegations of assault made against him. Uh, he denies those allegations, uh, issued a statement on Sunday saying, I've agreed with Manchester United to take a period of absence while I address the allegations made against me. This was a mutual decision to avoid distraction to my teammates and unnecessary controversy for the club. I want to reiterate my innocence of the things I've been accused of and I will fully cooperate with the police to help them reach the truth. I look forward to returning to play as soon as possible. Manchester United... Uh, said, we acknowledge the allegations made against Anthony. Players who have not participated in international matches are due back in training on Monday. However, it's been agreed with Anthony he'll delay his return until further notice. Uh, as a club, we condemn an act of violence and abuse. We recognise the importance of safeguarding all those involved in this situation and acknowledge the impact of these allegations have on survivors of abuse. Meanwhile, uh, finally, Luis Rubiales has announced his resignation as the president of the Spanish Football Federation. Maybe he always intended to resign, was waiting for the right forum, which was Piers Morgan's show on Talk TV. Um, he's resigned from his position as vice president of UEFA's executive committee. Um, and he said, I know you love these statements, it's not that long, Barry. Uh, he said on Piers Morgan Uncensored, I cannot continue my work after the quick suspension carried out by FIFA plus the rest of open proceedings against me. It's evidence I will not be able to return to my position. Insisting on waiting and holding on is not going to contribute anything positive, neither the, to the Federation nor to Spanish football. Uh, he claims the Hermoso kiss was mutual and consensual, but had been provisionally suspended by FIFA. Uh, Hermoso filed a legal complaint last Tuesday. Um, I'd encourage listeners to go back to the episode we did uh, on that subject. It is no surprise... Philippe, is it? And it is not before time. No, uh, not before time. And I think there's a, a huge sigh of relief um, in Spain that he f is finally gone because beyond um, what has happened and the ongoing case, which you know, you've know you already talked about at length, I mean, there was, beside that, the way it's harmed uh, Spain, Portugal and Morocco's bid for the 2030 World Cup, which was, you know, you couldn't, ha you couldn't have somebody like Rubiales close to it and it's done tremendous damage to them um, which how lasting this damage will be I don't know but it is real and so there was absolutely no other way everybody wanted him out I have to say that I'm absolutely astonished that it's taken him that long to do this um, but what can we say that we haven't already said a hundred times Max about entitlement of some people for example yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Barry, Saudi Arabia lost 3-1 to Costa Rica at St. James's Park in front of a bumper crowd. Yeah, a bumper crowd of around 5,000, I think, or slightly less. Um, although I think the official attendance given by Sky Sports News was 20,000, which was considerably more people than were actually there. I mean, it was, it was interesting insofar as it was Roberto Mancini's first match in charge of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Ministry for Sport in the country forbade him or any of his players for doing any interviews or press pre or post match, apart from one officially designated sort of Ministry of Sport inter sanctioned interview. And the Newcastle supporters against sports washing, who are a very small group but are making their presence felt on Twitter, they weren't allowed, pro they were hoping to, to have their protest and stand, uh, peaceful protest should be added, inside the stadium concourse, but they weren't allowed in, so they had to protest outside, and some, I suppose, funny and in a way depressing video footage emerged of them being harangued by 
Newcastle fans who I don't know if they just happened to be passing or going to the game to to support watch the game and support Saudi Arabia, who who were just what abouting them to within an inch of their lives, and this very polite elderly gentleman who was in charge of the protest was agreeing with everything they said and went, yes that's bad too but you know this is what we were protesting and yes the government selling missiles decided that's bad too yes i agree with you but you know we're kind of here to protest this so i think there's another friendly schedule there but uh, saudi arabia were well beaten by costa rica in the game itself including uh, one of the stand-up players, Sunderland winger Jewison Bennett for Costa Rica. So that's exciting for you, Barry. Uh, it, uh, imagine he did one interview with the host broadcaster, Pitch International. In non-league, I don't know if any of you saw this, uh, in the National League North game between Scunthorpe and Buxton, the game was abandoned in the fifth minute of injury time. With Buxton 2-1 up. Um, there was about five minutes of injury time left. Uh, Mark says, do you think the results should stand? Replay the whole match or finish the final five minutes at a later date? To be fair, it was absolutely pissing it down. I mean, it was like buckets. Apparently, like one of the... But but when the ref blew the whistle, everyone just thought he'd blown for full time. Like the manager just thought that was it. Everyone went in. And then they sort of found out later that the game had actually been abandoned. So that is slightly harsh on Buxton, who were down to 10 men uh, and uh, were winning. But... Uh, I don't know what will happen, but I would just go and play five minutes. Good to get everyone there for a five-minute match. And ironically, the, ho- the home of water as well. <laughs> yeah, really good. Um, uh, uh, Michael says, if Harry Kane doesn't manage to win any trophies during his Bayern Munich spell, should his next move be to Melbourne University? This is the news, if you haven't been following it, uh, that the Melbourne University old boys, the Bohemians, uh, the team that I supported since I was a boy, uh, we won the Metro 8... Football Victoria Metro 8 Southeast Division. Um, and it was a tremendous... Uh, without our without our Belgian um, professional footballer, Quentin, who did his knee playing for the firsts, uh, a, a bunch of predominantly bald men uh, triumphed uh, against a lot of younger kids. But we played a grand final yesterday against some 25-year-olds and got absolutely smashed. And I can't move my legs today. Did, did, did you have Aaron Moy... Thing for you no no but he could definitely he definitely qualifies i think he might not be old enough yet i think we're uh yeah that's an issue but we do play in an all-age league but we are all old and um i know a lot of listeners play amateur football and it is i will never stop playing there is nothing there's no better feeling even though i have scored more own goals than goals for this team um uh, and that'll do for today oh no um and things we want you to do you know when you bury you know when you get those uh, you're on hold and you've been on hold for about an hour and then someone says would you mind filling answering a survey at the end of this call and you're just like literally it's the last thing i'm ever going to do in my whole fucking life well well i recently got an email from uh i i do the weekly shop for a neighbor who's you know elderly not computer savvy so i do order his groceries online for him and i recently got a an email from asda not only wanting me to review the delivery service but to review each individual item i had ordered (laughs) and i thought oh christ uh, that that a rubicon has been crossed there so i mean anyway carry on uh, we are doing a survey of our listeners. Uh, it would be great if the Football Weekly audience could do it. 
Because when you listen on Spotify, Apple, or wherever, those podcast pl- platforms don't share a lot, so we know nothing about you. I've I've been to the live show, so I, I know a lot about them. <laughs> do, do they do they review every single component part of yeah. the uh, of the podcast? Every panelist, everything uh, every panelist has said, the sound oh quality. <laughs> That's not going to work out well. <laughs> it's a worry, isn't it? Um, I think the idea is not so we advertise more, but that you might have some interest in the things that we advertise rather than just random selections of things. If you fill out the survey, um, it will help keep the show on air. It says, blimey, that's a bit desperate, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) So it'll take five to ten minutes. You can do it quickly. Go to theguardian.com slash podcast survey and thank you and I'm sorry. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, is there anything else I can help you with? Is the next question I should ask. No, <laughs> what on earth? What, what else can you help me with? Um, and that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Philippe. Thank you very much, Max. Thank you, Barney. Cheers, Max. Bye. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is the Guardian. Thank you.